Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Book Lounge. Today, we are talking about the death and life of great American cities by Jane Jacobs. Your hosts are myself, Corinne Ritchie, and me, Tom Butler Bowden. So, the general aim with Book Insights, as you know by now, uh, we cover a book each week that can advance your work or your life in some way, or just make you think. Um, and I think the book this week will fall into the latter category. Um, as Book Insights curator, I'll give my take on each book, um, why I think it's worth reading or listening to, um, what my highlights are, and why I think it's still relevant. Yep, and I'll weigh in on the book and update you on the latest news about the author and the title. As always, the Book Insights episodes are the best to go to for the in-depth explorations of these best nonfiction books. But here in the Book Lounge, it's just more of an informal chat about the book of the week. Um, so for this season, we are bringing in guests, and today we have a great guest to talk about this book with us. Um, so since we're talking about a book by Jane Jacobs, it made sense for us to bring on the author of her biography called Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. The author of that book is an award-winning biographer, writer, and professor. We're so pleased that he is also our guest here in the book lounge. Uh, welcome, Robert Canigal. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Um, so, Robert, um, you've, you've written many books, including um, uh, one about a uh, great mathematician, I'm not sure I pronounce him correctly, uh, Ramanujan. Ramanujan. Yeah, The Man in New Infinity. Um, and you've written about uh, elite scientists and so on. Um, so just wondering where your interest in, in Jane Jacobs uh, came from. Um, I started out as a, um, I was a professor of science writing at MIT for a number of years, but I didn't get there by the usual route. Uh, I didn't go to graduate school. I got there as a writer. I got the job and the strength of the mm. books that I had written. And um, the books that I have written over the years have typically been um, sort of ambitious in the sense that they deal with some sort of intellectual subject, um, but always through a storytelling uh, lens. So my first book was called Apprentice to Genius. It was about uh, pharmacologists, neuropharmacologists. Then I wrote about, as you say, The Man Who Knew Infinity uh, that had mathematics of all things. Jane Jacobs uh, came along later, um, I, and it was a very natural, it was quite natural that I would come to Jane Jacobs. I'm a New Yorker. I grew up in Brooklyn. I went to high school in Manhattan at a place called Stuyvesant High School. In the very years that Jane was working on um, the death and life of great American cities. And for anybody growing up in New York at that time, Jane was kind of a god and a guru. Um, she expressed urban values, ways of seeing cities that uh, anybody who grew up in New York with his, uh, who could see, see New York um, came to share in a sense. And so years later, when I was looking around for the next book to write, I latched on to, uh, I was going to write a biography of Jane. And you'll excuse me for referring to her as Jane as opposed to Ms. Jacobs or anything else. Everybody calls her Jane. 
Her, chil her children called her Jane. Her associates called her Jane. Everyone did. Got it. Um, and um, before we had this interview, I think um, Corinne asked you to, to mention some of your uh, favorite books or books that had influenced you recently. Um, and I mean, I noticed one of them was The Power Broker by Robert Caro. Um, which we can which we can get into, um, but just quickly for for people who don't know, what is the relationship between Robert Caro and and Jane Jacobs? Robert Caro wrote an amazing book, uh, The Power Broker. It's about it's about Robert Moses, um, who was in some sense Jane's arch enemy uh, for many years, um, Moses had a sort of top down way of looking at cities and, um, he would get it into his head. I'm going to put a highway there. I'm going to put a big housing development there. I'm going to make the streets really wide. I'm going to, I want to take care of cars. And Jane Jacobs was more interested in taking care of people. What would it be like for pedestrians, for people actually living in a neighborhood, to live in uh, a particular neighborhood? And The Power Broker, um, Robert Caro's amazing book, which is something like 1,200 pages long. And I was sorry that it was over. It was so interesting. It was a wonderful book. After 1,200 pages. So I don't think there's any particular correlation between the length of a book or the shortness of a book and how exciting and intriguing the book is. And this is a perfect proof of that, perfect proof of that. Mm -hmm. So what do you um, say to us listeners and viewers who are like myself on the opposite coast? Or I know you mentioned your interest in Jane Jacobs because you grew up in New York. So what do you um, what, what's there to offer for those who aren't as familiar with New York City and that urban life? So if we've got listeners from all over the country and all Fair over the enough. world, um, what, did, what what's in that? What's in it for them? What's in it for them is the lesson to look around you, ask yourself whether you're living in the suburbs mm. of San Jose, if you're living in uh, Las Vegas or Phoenix or Chicago, look around you and ask, is this neighborhood serving you? Do you find that you can walk mm. out your front door and on a casual walk uh, go to the grocery and encounter people that you know? Or do you find yourself constrained and limited to get into a car no matter where you want to go, uh, even if it's just to get a cup of coffee, uh, do you find that your surroundings, while perhaps placid and pleasant, are maybe not as interesting as a Jane Jacobs would like? That there is a, uh, a sameness, perhaps, to some of, some of the neighborhoods that you look around. And that may be perfect for you. That may be just the kind of place that you want to be living but it may not be. And um, neighborhoods around the country, not only in New York, I live in Baltimore, which is not mm. as, as energetic a place as Jane would, um, would advance. Uh, but most cities have areas within them that are characterized by what Jane called mixed primary uses, which is a fancy term for a lot of different things going on in the neighborhood whether it's schools and housing and um, uh, basic shopping, if you can find all those things, 
you encounter people almost naturally and organically just in living your daily life. And for some of us, real city dwellers, urban dwellers, we find that satisfying and exciting. Mm. Good breakdown. Um, so just to go back yeah. a bit, um, for people who haven't read the book, Jane Jacobs, so she was living in like lower Manhattan in, in the 50s. And um, there was a there was this plan from Robert Moses, who Robert mentioned, for a scheme for a lower Manhattan um, expressway that would cut through Washington Square where she was living. And she loved that, you know, she loved living around there. Um, so um, I think at the time she was working for an architectural magazine. And, um, and then she wrote an article um, criticising Jacobs and, and this plan and everything, which caused a bit of a stir. And then three years later, the book came out, Death and Life of Great American Cities, 1961. And it's been seen as sort of the most influential book on American city planning, actually influential around the world and sort of subversive to the whole paradigm that existed at the time. And that paradigm, when she was writing, of sort of beauty, elegance, order in cities. Um, Robert, could you say something about that, about, you know, the, the, the sort of conventional wisdom at the time when, when Jane Jacobs came along? I would have to say that the conventional wisdom is still in that direction that the, there's an assumption that people want order, facidity, neatness, perfect cleanliness, uh, everything in its place, and, they, and that they're offended by um, disorder. And I think by disorder and um, uh, anything that mixes things too thoroughly and presents them with sights or scenes or human experience that maybe they're not 100% comfortable with. And Jane advanced this contrary idea uh, that what you want is to live an interesting life. Not everybody does want to live an interesting life. They want to have a life that is more settled and relaxed and that's one of the criticisms of Jane, that some middle, some or many middle class uh, people do not want to have the kind of life that she took for granted as an urban dweller that she found so satisfying. Got it. So she was a bit, um, she would have found suburbia boring. Um, and the idea- She did find suburbia boring. <laughs> And the idea of commuting into work. So she wanted people to work and live in the area, all, all in the same place. And she, I think a couple of phrases she came up with was, was also the sort of feeling of trust and community. So she had this term social capital and eyes on the street. And she thought probably paradoxically that it was safer to live in a place where there are lots of people who could all see each other than one where everyone was sort of locked in their little houses. I think that's a fair breakdown. I think, by the way, that she wouldn't have said, I want people to live in X. I think she would have, in a particular environment, I think she would have said, if people live in a particular kind of environment that she's talking about, that she's favoring, 
um, they, they will experience a different kind of a life. And if they live out in the suburbs or in uh, other kinds of locales, they will experience a different kind of life. And the, the least you ought to do is to be clear with yourself what makes you tick, what grants you satisfaction and happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if for those listening, like, what do you think would if if they're doing like a self-assessment and trying to figure out, oh, I've never thought about, you know, the style of city that I live in, what would make uh, a good candidate for somebody who should live in like the, the New York boroughs that Jane Jacobs put together? Or like, you know, her particular style and way that she liked to arrange cities like if somebody's listening, how would they know if they would be better suited <laughs> somewhere like that versus where they are? Yeah. Um, the, one of the criticisms aimed at Jane is that she expected everybody, uh, whether this is fair or not, that she expected everybody to have as wide a range of interests and as much of a mm. hunger for diversity and human mm. interest as she did. And um, that may be a, a good marker that if you find yourself constantly curious, wanting to see different people, different lifestyles, um, bored with sameness, with doing the same thing all the time and everything being just so. That's sort of a one way of gauging the kind of place that you want to live in. Jane's own experience was after she came uh, to New York, what she would do, she lived first in Brooklyn, and then she um, was looking for a job in Manhattan. And typically the jobs would occupy her in the morning. And then in the afternoon, she'd get on the subway and get off randomly at some subway stop and climb up the stairs up to the street and walk around a little bit. And at every stop, which is true of New York to this day, every stop is a different kind of a neighborhood. And she would explore neighborhoods by... Uh, getting out at that subway stop and walking around. And that's how she discovered Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. Um, And Robert, I mean, I've read some of Robert Caro's um, books and um, I guess one thing he emphasises a lot um, is with Jane Jacobs, um, one thing she opposed was the revitalisation of East Harlem. Um, and parts of, uh, also parts of Manhattan that were very sort of working class. Um, now, um, Robert Moses thought these were sort of terrible rundown areas that should be bulldozed. Um, he had no sort of understanding of the local community and, and feel and so on. Um, so I was just interested, like, A, the sort of, sort of race, race, almost racist, classist approach to conventional planning, and then B, how a lot of these areas are now highly sought after in terms of, like, moving back into the city because they're so alive. Um, just wonder if you could comment on, on those two things. Uh, I think it's possible that those... I mean, tracing cause and effect is not always so simple. But the fact is, in neighborhoods across the country, in enclaves in various cities around the country, 
there has been a resurgence of the kind of urban living that Jane Jacobs uh, applauded. And so an argument can be made that the life and vitality of the kind of neighborhoods that you're mentioning that have gone from um, lower class or poor into areas that are very attractive to well-off people can be ascribed in part at least to Jane Jacobs herself and the influence and the influence of her book. Um, as far as race, um, I think it might be necessary to say that in 1958, 59, 60, 61, when she was writing, she did not see through the lens of, of race very much. And uh, some criticisms of Jane have included the fact that she was a middle-class girl. She came, her father was a doctor. Uh, she grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania in a nice house, not in the kind of neighborhood that she would normally favor. And um, that she perhaps wasn't as attuned to the, um, to the difficulties and pains and injustices of working class life or um, of vari the various minorities, black, Hispanic, and so on. And then it turns out that the neighborhoods that have, many of the neighborhoods that have come back uh, were neighborhoods that um, had been poor, but were, were sort of crowded and had the, what you might call the physical infrastructure of, the, of a kind that Jane uh, favored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and... Now, this is a question I wanted to get into, um, which is very current. I mean, in, she wrote another book called The Economy of, of Cities, um, which I loved. Um, it's a more sort of, I guess, conventional economic take version of, of the death and life of American cities. And in that, she says, cities have always been through history the main driver of development and wealth, and they'll be even more important in the future. I'm just wondering, in the wake of the pandemic, do you still think that is correct? Or have cities changed forever? You know, particularly if commuting goes out of the window. I mean, how do you see the future of Manhattan, for instance? Right now, what, from what I hear, Manhattan is a ghost town uh, with people working the way we're working now. We're talking on Zoom. I see you. I see Karen, you see me. In some sense, we are having a conversation that is not that different, perhaps, than conversations we would have had two years ago in one of our living rooms. And yet it Just is less different. Snacks. What's that? What's Just less snacks. Less, fewer snacks, yeah. Um, and no <laughs> drinks to enjoy either. Um, mm -hmm. We're able to communicate. The um, huge corporations are having Zoom meetings all the time. Uh, small companies are having Zoom meetings all the time when their employees are back at home working out of their living room. Is this really, though, the way we want to live? And um, I am ill-equipped to predict the future. Uh, my own feeling is that this need or yearning or connection or interest in... Um, 
one-to-one personal connection is not going to disappear. That human beings are set up to need other human beings and that looking at people on a screen is not going to be the same and never going to be the same. Will things return to just they were the way they were before the pandemic? Probably not. But I don't think cities are doomed as a result. But on, when it comes to predictions, don't count on me. I've made some really bad predictions in my time. <laughs> yeah. Can you give any... Um... Yeah. Can you give any like a Jane Jacobs signature or something that people can look at and go, I'm thankful to Jane Jacobs for this particular thing. So maybe when they're walking around their own city or if they happen to get to Manhattan or something like that, what's that signature calling card of Jane Jacobs to say thank you for this particular thing? Well, Death and Life of Great American Cities is a big and ambitious book. And it looks at the aspects of city life in considerable detail. For example, there are are three chapters on nothing more than sidewalks. And what sidewalks in a place like Manhattan do? And many people live in suburbs where uh, the sidewalk is like this thick, this wide, and barely, you can barely have two people walk down. Whereas in Jane's time in lower Manhattan, sidewalks can be you know, six, uh, 10, 12, 14 feet wide with lots of activity going on. Um, I think one feature of a Jane Jacobs kind of neighborhood is a sidewalk that is active, that is busy, that is filled with people where there are things going on and not just at a few times of the day, not just at 5 p.m. when people are coming out of work, but in some ways all across the day where different people are doing different things and are living different parts of their lives. So I think that would be one way. Another would be a whole emphasis on pedestrian activity in general, as opposed to getting everywhere by car. Cars in some locales obviously are quote efficient. You get into the car, and a half an hour later, you're deposited where you want to be. And, and you've lived in this cocoon, listening to the radio maybe, but you haven't exactly been connected with your fellow human being. And if that pulls on you after a while, if that no longer seems as thrilling and ex- as exciting as it was when Henry Ford first made the Model T and people were able to drive in their own Model T into the country or country people were able to come into town. It was a brand new thing. It was a wonderful thing. And yet things have become so far gone where the car so monopolizes our lives that real city dwellers don't go for that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I my background, I came from Australia and then now living in the UK. UK is very dense. Um, People, a lot of people catch buses and trains all the time rather than um, driving around. Um, And I remember I spent a couple of weeks in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I thought, oh, I'll go for a walk. And where I could find the sidewalk, (laughs) I I walked on it. But I I soon realised people were sort of staring at me like I was some crazy man, Hmm. you know, that I didn't have a car and I was going for a walk and stuff. 
and I, that just hit home to me. What is how the much... matter with you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this crazy man's walking around. <laughs> I mean, particularly LA, it, it just, re- that sort of massive difference mm-hmm. between like Europe and, and the US in terms of the, the car driving culture. Most places in well, the US. Well, and even... Uh, yeah, even within, because here in the Bay Area, compared to when I lived down in L.A., that's night and day different. San Francisco is designed for public transportation. Yeah. It's designed for walking around. Uh, when I lived down in West Hollywood, it was like, well, you've got a seven-mile commute, and there's no way to get there other than driving. Yeah. There's no bus line. There's no train. There's no walking. Seven miles. I couldn't even bike it. There was no possible way to bike seven miles. Like mm-hmm. It was just crazy. Yeah, and um, I just wanted to mention one other thing about Jane Jacobs that I think is very important is she she believed that great cities arose organically um, and um, anything that was sort of planned tend to be stale and contrived. Um, a couple of her examples, like if you compare Rio de Janeiro with Brasil- Brasilia, you know, the capital that was created, you compare Sydney with Canberra, which is sort of in inland and it's, well, sorry for Canberra residents, but it's not, not a very exciting place. And um, so this whole thing of cities grow organically and they become a magnet for very, uh, for talent and, pe- and ambitious people and people who want more social interaction. And her point was that often a, a, a great city doesn't, Originally, it might evolve because it's on a river or in a port or something. But great cities become even greater just by force of the people that move there and this sort of human capital and um, the create. So her, her basic thing seemed to be that what cities do above anything else is they breed creativity and, and new kinds of work uh, that hadn't existed before. Um, so, I mean, Robert. That's basically the argument of. That's basically the argument of the other book that you mentioned, the economy, the economy of cities. Yeah, um, and do you think that this is because? Is it just because the people are all in one place, or is there something to do with the actual layout of a city that that promotes this? In terms of the sidewalk streets, is it just basically <laughs> people running into each other, or is it? What is it? Well, I think cities have long attracted um, specialized districts. Districts, uh, Even in, in India, as I recall, I remember chaotic places where uh, in the business area there would be a whole set of shops, one after the other, 20, 30 shops, all devoted to selling um, um, cookware. Uh, brass and copper cookware. Uh, in New York, 47th Street is the diamond is the diamond district. Um, what happens? Somebody ought to write a book about just this. What happens when you have 20 or 30 shops all devoted to one particular product or one particular um, one particular particular entrepreneurial idea? What happens to the people who live that life, who work that life, and how are they influenced by the people that they see every day? Certainly it's different than if you live 
all if, if you work all alone and you have your little shop and it's 50 miles from the nearest place like it, clearly the um, the chemistry of your business life is going to be different in those two cases. So clearly it has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, Jane Jacobs, um, Corinne, you did some research, her background. When did she pass away? Yeah, so um, she died in 2006, and she's primarily remembered today for her role in preventing the overhaul of Greenwich Village in New York. Um, and also the cancellation of the Lower Manhattan Expressway, so this giant freeway that was trying to go through, which now um, or later has become Soho, Little Italy, and Chinatown. So uh, those are definitely things you can thank Jane Jacobs for, that you're getting some lovely food instead of hanging out underneath a freeway. So, um, And then after working in New York, she also became an activist in city planning in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Right. And she was sort of anti-Vietnam War, right? I think that's why the family moved to Canada, I think. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Um, so uh, let me just say, you know, if, if we were to ask, why is Jane best remembered today? Yes, you can certainly point to all the uh, specific urban planning um, measures or uh, changes that she discouraged and was able to reverse. But I would say it's this book, more than anything, and the influence that this book had on city planners and also on ordinary people in terms of how they view living in living in cities. This book itself, as a book, Jane was, was a writer. And I think it's important that we give credit to Jane as a writer. She came up as a writer. She honed her skills on um, also in, on a small scale, writing magazine articles, working for the State Department for many years, uh, doing all sorts of things that might not seem that exciting, but all the while she was honing her craft. And we owe the significance of this book in part to the vitality of her mind, but also to her simple skills as a writer. This book, this book will last, will live forever, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And I know she had to kind of overcome some some hurdles because being a change maker in, at her time and with her gender and all of that, uh, it was it was difficult. She didn't have the sort of credentials that the traditional city planners had at that time. Um, could you speak to sort of the challenges that she faced in trying to uh, influence the city planning in this way? Well, at one point, um, she was she was, you know, like a writer like me, maybe like you. I don't know. You spend most of your time in a little room writing things with paper and typewriter. And then uh, there was a city, there was an important conference coming up in uh, at Harvard in 1950, in the late 50s. And uh, her boss at the uh, publication that she was writing for said, look, will you, they, they asked me to come. Could you go instead and she said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and basically he promised her, look, 
you know, I had an idea for what I wanted to talk about. But you write about, talk about whatever you want. And for the first time, she got up amongst the, and she, she agreed to do it. And she got up amongst these um, city planners and city thinkers, hundreds of them in this elite setting, um, and spoke only for 10 minutes. But those 10 minutes had such an impact. And people would say, she saved this conference. This was the freshest, freshest, newest kinds of ideas we've heard about city planning in, you know, in years. And in a way, that bravery to overcome her nervousness about getting up in front of all these uh, well-credentialed people and saying what she really thought, that paved the way for her whole future. Mm. She had guts as well as brains. Yeah. Some, some of the things she was called was a housewife, a militant, an amateur, and a crazy dame. Uh, I mean, I can only imagine, you know, that's whole sort of being the outsider against this whole establishment uh, is amazing. I mean, I said at the beginning, like this book sort of falls into the the books we cover that make you think, but actually on a sort of, just on a personal level, she's, she's pretty inspiring to, to learn about her life. Absolutely. And she had some very strong words to say about the city planning process as well. So while they're calling her this like, you know, busybody housewife, she's talking about like, so I love this quote from the book that says the pseudoscience of planning seems almost neurotic in its determination to imitate empiric failure and ignore empiric success. It's like, well, tell us how you really feel, Jane. (laughs) She, she had a way of putting things, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this, we, we always, uh, Robert, we always sort of give a rating for a book out of five and say why. Uh, I'll, I'll start off. Um, uh, as you mentioned, Robert, it, this is just a great book to read. I mean, it's just, yeah, surprisingly engrossing for a book about city planning. Um, and um, I just also love her, the way her sort of personality comes through. Uh, so I, I gave, give it a four out of five. Uh, Corinne? Yeah. Um, so what I liked about this book is it, it kind of has that matrix feel of like you're just living your normal life and you don't even see that you're living within this whole infrastructure, you know, uh, kind of opening your eyes to something you may not have thought about. So that's what I really like about it is I've never thought so much about sidewalks. I've never thought so much about public transportation. You sort of just take it for granted as like, well, this is the way all cities are. But but then you think it through and you're like, no, they're, very, they're quite different. So I, I liked it for those purposes. But you know, typically here in the book lounge, my favorite uh, books tend to be those that are immediately applicable to, you know, self-help and psychology, things that I can put into practice immediately. So I liked this book for making me think, but I tend to lean towards those that are going to, you know, steer me in some kind of way. So I'm going to give this three three bookmarks out of five. Robert, okay. what's your final take on it? Well, if, I, if I've spent as much time as I did writing about the genesis and creation of this book as I did and try to make the act, Jane's act of writing her own book as exciting as I could for my book. I've got a big investment. 
um, in the death True. and life of great You're Americans. Committed. So maybe I'm not to be trusted as much as you. I would give it a five for its um, earth-shaking quality. There are areas where she just goes over the deep end and it's way too much. I don't want to hear it anymore. Uh, most of the time, I didn't feel that way. Even in a few junctures, she allowed herself to get unduly carried away. And that detracts from the overall experience of reading the book. But most of the time, I was just totally won over and thrilled, really, really excited to be in the presence of this mind. That's the, one of the, 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 the great things about writing a, about reading a book by a great author, that you are in, you may spend your whole life looking for people in your daily life who are inspiring and brilliant and exciting. Uh, and here, reading a book, you are in the presence of that intellect. And that is their gift to you. And that's, that's the way I felt about death and life. That's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's absolutely true. All right. Well, um, Robert, are, is, is there anywhere that if people want to connect with you, any upcoming projects or books or websites or anywhere that uh, if people want to know more about you and your work, they can find you? Uh, I have a website. Uh, I just need to remember the name of it. <laughs> it's, uh, we'll, we'll drop it in the show notes. No okay. problem. Yep. Um, we'll put your website. That yep. lists all my books. I have a new book coming out in mm -hmm. April from Knopf, uh, which is called Hearing Homer's Song, uh, The Brief Life, mm -hmm. The Big Idea and Big Life of Milman Parry. Milman Parry, I guarantee you, is somebody you never heard of. But he is basically the foremost classical scholar, American classical scholar of the 20th century. And he's responsible for really overturning our ideas about the Odyssey and the Iliad. We all know that the Odyssey and the Iliad were written by Homer. We all know that, even if you've never gone near the books. But uh, basically what Milman Parry showed is that nobody really wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, that, it was the, that both these books were the products of oral poets who thousands of years ago sang their songs and then eventually they became the Odyssey and the Iliad. And it's a, um, it's a wonderful story of how this transformation took place in the mind of the son of a, an, an Oakland, California druggist who we wouldn't normally maybe expect that much of, but one day studying Greek at UC Berkeley, the idea of the, this idea came to him and he devoted the rest of his life to developing it. So it's called Hearing, Hearing Homer's Song. Hmm. All right. And I live just a few miles from Oakland and I've never heard of this person. So now I've got to look at my local history and, and figure this out. That's this exactly what you've got to do. And Corinne, I hope you, you walk there Another on the sidewalk. Answer. That's right. <laughs> yep. I will walk myself right over to Bart and Bart straight into Oakland. Good. Yep. It's only two exits away. Okay. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us here in the Book Lounge. Really appreciate your time and talking about the death and life of great American cities. And thank you all for watching on YouTube or listening to the podcast. And as always, you can connect with us on social media at Book Insights Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, and YouTube. All right. Thank you so much. And I hope you'll t- tune in again next week for the next Book of the Week. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you.